Hello, everyone. This is Frank Riker. And this is Darren Sands. And this is the Slaughterland Podcast. Darren, 1987 of Cool, Cruel Summers. We're not alone, are we? We have a special no. guest. Absolutely, yeah. We have a special guest. And it's uh, it's Barry, who's uh, the host of Wolfman's Got Nards, a great YouTube channel that I've been following for a few years. So let's bring him in. Hello. Hey, Barry. Hey, Barry. Hiya. Thanks for having me, guys. Well, thank you for coming on. Thank we you. really, really appreciate it. You know, it's it's a uh, we're both Darren and I are both subscribers of your uh, channel, and we're big fans. And it's uh, it's very humbling that you would actually come on our little little show here. Yeah, well, I wouldn't miss it. I've been listening to all your episodes of your Cool Crew Summers, and 1987 is a, a very memorable one for me, for definite. Can't wait, so, can't wait, yeah, can't so wait to hear what your favorite movies are. We know one of them on there. There's a few. <laughs> Okay, should we go then, Frank? So, Barry, as you know, Darren always lists some key moments of this year, of any year that we do in 1987. And these are some of the moments. You know, I looked them over, and they're not so doom and gloom as he usually has them. Um, one key moment is that Hulk Hogan defended his title against Andre the Giant in WrestleMania in Michigan. WrestleMania 3. Okay. And then the next one was <laughs> director of oh, yeah, Twilight. Hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. I remember that well. That's a, that's a key point from my childhood. Same here. Yeah. So that's that's where he body slammed him, right? For the first that's time? right, yeah. yeah. Almost <laughs> killed himself in the process as well. <laughs> what was it? The Pontiac Silverdome or something like that they call it? Yes. Yeah. yeah it's like 100,000 okay. people in one arena or something. A great key moment. Now, the next one also was John Landis was found uh, you know, innocent of involuntary manslaughter on the set of directing Twilight Zone for the death of Victor Morrow. Um, Can I I just talk about that bit as well? Sure, please. I just found out about this one from your podcast on that year um, when you spoke about it and I looked it up and read about it and I was completely shocked. I didn't even know who Vic Morrow was at the time and just reading about it, I was like, wow, that's unbelievable. The fact that John Landis had a career after that was even more incredible. That gave me nightmares just listening to your podcast. It's, um, it's horrible. Oh, it's, it's horrible. Like crazy. The, the yeah. documentary on um, on Shudder is shocking because they actually show you the incident on there. You don't yeah. think they're going to do, and they actually do. Yeah, yeah. It's on YouTube and everything, so it's no, it's nothing new. But it is you can't really see anything. But it is just a horrible moment. It's yeah, like you say, it's it's hard to believe that he went on to have a career after that because. Yeah, what horrible! And I didn't realize until I was looking into it more that Vic Morrow was was Jennifer Jason Lee's dad. Yeah, yeah, horrible. Anyway, let's move on, Frank. Okay, next horrible uh, thing that Darren listed was that uh, you know, <laughs> uh, another horrible guy, Michael Jackson, buys a man who was disabled the 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 uh, the bones of the Elephant Man. <laughs> really, you could buy a dead person; and it doesn't matter how, as long as you're rich. You can buy somebody. I don't think he went through with it. I think he attempted to buy him. But, I mean, where'd you find this stuff? Where, where the hell? How'd you go about buying the remains of the Elephant Man? Who's selling them? Well, Spielberg got the skeletons for Poltergeist. Why not? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> a little... Now, the next one is a little closer to home for, uh, for Darren. Is uh, Margaret Thatcher, the first prime minister in 160 years, wins a third consecutive term. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this one's close. 
close to home for you, Frank, this next one. Oh, okay. Yeah, this one's terrible. Um, probably one of the best sounding album titles. Um, this, or t- yeah, just the title itself, Slippery When Wet. The third album from Bon Jovi is released, and it becomes a top-selling album of all year. Uh, bon Jovi is from my home state, uh, home state of New Jersey, and he's an absolute <laughs> All right, and the next one... Uh... <laughs> Do you know that Bon Jovi has had no number one hits in the UK? I could see why. I thought he had lots of number ones, but apparently not. Not even... Um, always. Always, or um, what was the one... Um... Living on a prayer. Apparently not. I need to double check that. No, but... I think you're right. I actually do think you're right. Yeah. For, are they big in America, Frank? Still? Oh yeah, huge on the East Coast. You yeah. know, because um, he plays in New York City. He plays here in Jersey. You know, which is right over you know the bridges and tunnels. And he's very popular, but he's not as popular as the boss, Bruce Springsteen. Hey. Bruce is Bruce is Bruce. You can't yeah. top Bruce. No. And then, more importantly, our next key moment. Over in Europe, especially in the British on British television, the first advert for a condom is aired. Maybe. And a packet of condoms, please. Of course. Mr. Williams, how much are these condoms? Condoms. It goes without saying. They make sense. <laughs> I, do, I don't remember it. I do, uh, do I remember it? Was it? No, I didn't. No, not of that age. I yeah, probably no, didn't I don't know remember what that was. <laughs> was it you know uh, the uh, did the guy have a condom in the banana like they showed you in school yeah they, they used to do all that stuff but no I, don't, <laughs> I, I guess it was a Durex advert or something like that I certainly no need for them in 1987 so I can't remember to be honest <laughs> so the beginning of the summer which is basically May and uh, so on May 1st we have the release of Creep Show 2 Barry, are you are you a, were you a fan of the original Creep Show? I don't know anybody who actually wasn't. To tell you the truth. Yeah, yeah, I really liked Creep Show. I love that kind of anthology style horror movie, especially in the eighties. Um, but yeah, Creep Show was one of my favourite ones. Um, but Creep Show Two as well. I think it's. I like that. I don't know about now, but I like that equally as much as I did the original. Uh, it was the original nineteen eighty two. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I was a big fan of Creepshow. Obviously, had big names in it as well. But yeah, I really liked that one. Frank, you're, um, you're obsessed with um, things going wrong on, on movie sets. Uh, particularly in our last episode, we had quite a few uh, uh, encounters with death. <laughs> and this one had one as well. Uh, so yeah. Daniel Beer, who played Randy in the, um, in the raft, raft segment, yeah. <laughs> almost died of hypothermia. Uh, the water was so cold, his body turned green, uh, and the crew wanted him <laughs> to continue acting. But director Michael Garnick, Michael Garnick, um, uh, not really directed anything else, to be honest. He was the DP on Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead, and he insisted that they they keep working. 
uh, <laughs> even if they got out of the water, he'd walk off the set and never return. Rings of uh, of, of Jason, doesn't it? Well, what was it? Part four, where what's her name was in the water for so long, and uh, it was it Joseph Zito kept her in the water, and Ted White said he better get her out of there before she dies, or I'm not doing this because she was having hypothermia. The girl who played um, who was in Weird Science, she was in the raft. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, she she was gonna die from hypothermia as well. These a lot of these horror movies want you in freezing cold water. But but Barry, uh, what, what what's your favorite segment in Creepshow Two? Because you know I, you have Chief Woodenhead, you have uh, the raft, and because this one had because uh, the old one in 1982 had five episodes, uh, if I'm not mistaken. This one only had three, plus a mixed yeah. comic bookish, you know, uh, animation in there. It had Chief Woodenhead, it had the raft, then it had the hitchhiker. Mm-hmm. Personally, my favorite one is the hitchhiker. You know, where the guy, the lady runs over uh, the hitchhiker, and he keeps on coming back, and just keeps on saying, "Thanks for the ride, lady." <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think my favorite one's maybe the raft because I like the situation that they're in. Um, but I also do quite like, although it was quite a slow build-up. I like the first one, the Chief Woodenhead one. Um, obviously, had some good actors in it as well. You had George Kennedy. And the the guy with the long hair who's in what's he in now? He's in Heroes. He was in Mine Hunters as well. He's on now. Wrath of Man. He was in the yep. Wrath of Man. Yes. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I quite I like the acting in the the first one, but I think the raft is probably my favourite one because of the situation that they're in. Yeah, mine's definitely the hitchhiker one. I think one because it's got it's, it's Lewis Childs, isn't it? Who's in there? Who was a Bond girl from um, Moonraker, and and had one of the. Um, the best uh, best Bond girl names, which was Holly Goodhead. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, that that segment where she accidentally runs over and does she kill him? He comes back as a zombie, doesn't he? After her, yeah, like an evil um, spirit. His his body yeah, yeah. is still left, and it's funny because in that movie when she runs him over, she just got done visiting her gigolo. Her, yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah. You know her 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 boyfriend. <laughs> And she's, she, I guess, drops a cigarette and she, you know, is trying to put it out. And she hits, um, I think his name is Todd Wright, who mm. plays the hitchhiker. And when she drives off, it was a hit and run. Stephen King's the truck driver who pulls up later That's and starts right. looking yes, at all the flares. Yeah. And, um, the guy who calls in for 911 for assistance is her husband. By the time you know she he finds her, uh, he's late because, well, he stopped to fix her accident. Either, but she didn't. Uh, he didn't know right. that was her that ran him over. Ah, uh, right. Okay. okay. Doesn't um, Tom Savini play the creep in that? He yeah. does. Yeah, yeah. He does it. But they. I mean, it's it's really only in kind of body, isn't it? Because. <laughs> some, they dubbed him over with someone yeah. else for some reason. The voice but, is actually Joel Silver. Is oh, it really? <laughs> yeah. No. Yep. Yep. In the end credits, you see creep, uh, uh, creeper voice Joel Silver. Wow, I didn't know that. Apparently, I, Nicolas Cage was supposed to play the creep. He was. was <laughs> yeah, that was a rumor, wasn't it? That he yeah. was going to play the creep. And then Tom Savini played him. So, Creep Show 2 released on May the 1st, um, 1987. Box office of 14 million for a budget of three and a half. That's not bad. That's okay yeah. for a horror film back in the, in the late 80s. Uh, cool. Unfortunately, the, the critics 
didn't like it at all. 29%. So it's a kind of splat on Rotten Tomatoes. But I'd say the summer was was reasonably cool for it. I, I think I think, think that Rotten Tomato score is unjustly. I, I think it doesn't deserve. I think it's it's a good anthology sequel. But I, I think it's I think the most most people, and probably including all of us uh, oh. here, Creepshow One is probably our favorite. Out of, yeah. out of everything. Uh, yeah, sure. Creepshow 2 is, is good. And Creepshow 3 is just god-awful. It, it, it's just terrible. A lot, a lot of people don't know Creepshow 3 actually exists. And rightly so. Yeah. Have you seen it, Barry, Creepshow 3? I actually saw the first 20 minutes of it, I think, uh, and then turned it off. I think <laughs> one of his big issues was that came out in 2006, I think, and it's it wasn't really a time for that type of film. No, uh, and obviously the first two are great. So this was terrible. Yeah, <laughs> it's shocking. Even the like because both the Creepshow films have that kind of great animation that they use at the start mm-hmm. of the movie. Creepshow three just has this horrible sort of computer generated nonsense at the start. It just doesn't even feel like a Creepshow film at all. Nah. Yeah, Creepshow two, pretty cool at um, fourteen million box office. So yeah, cool summer for it. So next we have, we're, we're going to get rid of, you know, get into the raft and pick it up hitchhikers and all that. And we're going to move on to go into Beverly Hills again, because on May 20th, we get the release of a, the sequel to Beverly Hills Cop called Beverly Hills Cop 2. Eddie Murphy is Axel Foley. Who is he? I'd say he's a cop. And the team's back on in Beverly Hills. Is the steam working this thing? I'm serious! Do the brake work? Man, the drain of it! Beverly Hills Cop 2. <laughs> Starts Wednesday at a selected theater near you. Now, now, gentlemen, is this just as good as the first, or it can't beat the first, in your opinion? Because the critics, you know, don't agree with the, with the 47%, but we'll talk about it later. It's the box office compared to the budget. Do we think that the sequel is just as good or it's on par with the first? I preferred the first one. I actually preferred the third one to part two. Really? Um, yeah, I don't know. I think, you know, I was still young when part three came out as well. And I just remember more about part three, uh, more memorable scenes as well. But I thought part two was the most forgettable one. I don't know why. But I, I obviously, I prefer the first one. But I think they were all okay. But part two was probably the least favourite of mine, for Interesting. sure. Interesting. Yeah. I'm a big fan of Beverly Hills Cop 2. I mean, I think it wasn't so much when I first saw it. I remember going to the cinema to see it. Um, the first one, of course, was just so good that um, it, it could never beat it. Um, but as a big, loud, noisy kind of um, Jerry Bruckheimer action picture, I thought it was terrific. And it, it was around the time that... You know, it was a year after Top Gun. It was around the time where Bruckheimer started to get that kind of stamp on his movies, that kind of, you know, all those sunsets and, and slow-mos and, you know, the, the sort of thing you see in all the Bruckheimer films like Con Air and The Rock and um, Days of Thunder. You know, everything's filmed at sunset. It's Tony Scott as well. It's You know, I think he helped a lot with that. Yeah. But, yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Beverly Hills Cop 2. I think it's just a really... Now, noisy, kind of sexy, funny-looking um, '80s buddy-buddy film, which uh, 
you know, I think looked way ahead of its time when it first came out. It's not as funny as the first one, but in terms of you know um, of, of, of being an action picture, I think it's I think it's pretty pretty slick i like it um of course it's not as good as the first one usually nothing ever is it you know i could tell that they wanted to do something else with beverly hills cop um you know just reading about it you know and from what i know watching the commentary or you know watching the listening to the commentary on the dvd um that they wanted it to be a mixture of 48 hours a little bit more action and isn't the music uh, isn't the music in it kind of like Commando? It's the same type of, you know, <laughs> yeah, those, it's that those kind of metal synth. drums. Yeah, there's a bit of that in there. That, well, that's more 48 hours. That has the kind of steel drums in it a lot of the time, which is yeah. similar to Commando. But I know what you mean. It's it's quite heavy on the synth, is this, and, and guitar riffs and stuff. But um, Well, they didn't want to even do a part two. They wanted to make a TV series after the yeah, first one because right. it's so popular. And Eddie's like, I'm not going back to TV. <laughs> yeah, I think TV back then was a bit of a kind of poison chalice, wasn't it? If you went to do something on TV back in the 80s, then you were failing. Whereas now it's kind of a badge of honor and people are doing miniseries and, you know, TV movies, Netflix films and that for fun these days, aren't they? Yeah. Um, but did you know that there was actually a Beverly Hills Cop pilot that was done yeah, with and, Eddie and Murphy? He was, he was yeah. in it as well. Mm-hmm. And it never saw the light of day. And it was all based around his son. Um, I definitely was, want to see that episode. That, that yeah, episode's yeah. supposed to be good. I heard it's I, good. Yeah, yeah. I've seen um, stills from it and, and yeah. pictures of him in there. But uh, it's never been released ever. And I think this was around about maybe 10 years ago, maybe 10, 12 years ago or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but maybe we'll see it one day, hopefully. And the boy who plays his son is a good actor. He was in the Percy Jackson films. Oh, what's his name? He's in Roll Bounce. Oh, I can't remember his name, but he's he's quite a good actor as well. And he, he kind of looks the part as yeah. he, he could be his son. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's something I'd love to see. I think they will release it at one point, but it's almost been 10 years or so since yeah. they filmed it. We need to yeah, see it. Yeah. I think he's, he's, isn't he like kind of toying with the idea of doing a new film anyway? Netflix have got the rights to it, haven't they? Um, for, for another Beverly Hills Cop film with um, the guys who did um, the the Bad Boys sequel, the recent uh, Bad Boys for Life sequel, right. um, they're down to direct it apparently. So I'd be interested to see that. Yeah, we got to keep the theme song in there, right? That, that's just as iconic as the movie itself, isn't it? Oh yeah. And yeah. then the Detroit Lions jacket, you got to keep all that. Mm. Um, you know, but the. Tony Scott directed the second one, this one, I believe. Yeah, he did. And if you look at the movie and you go into Judge Reinhold's office, you see Rambo 2 and Cobra as posters on his wall. It's funny because, well, not for Sly, because Bridget had an affair with Tony Scott (laughs) during this movie. And imagine your husband's pictures are all (laughs) over on the back wall. I did learn about that, but I've never, I never made that connection. Really, <laughs> I was thinking more along the lines of, well, yeah, Cobra was initially what Stallone wanted Beverly Hills Cop to be, wasn't it? But yeah, that's 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 interesting. She she loved to have a bit of fun, didn't she, old Bridget? Because I think she was uh, having an affair on the set of um, Red Sonia. Uh, Red Sonia as well. <laughs> <laughs> 
And also, Frank, a bit of trivia for you. First uh, first uh, movie ever to be filmed at the Playboy Mansion. Oh, yeah. We get introduced to Chris Rock for the first time, don't we? We do. <laughs> a really young Chris Rock. It's, uh, it's funny because I think in the first one, we didn't we have uh, Damon Wayans in, uh, the, the, in, the, in the, the, the first pipe. one? Yeah, 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 the banana and the tailpipe. You know, but... <laughs> You know, apparently this was the biggest weekend opening of the movie. Uh, was it of the year or of the summer? Because it made $299 million on, on a $28 million budget. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't, um, it, it pro- quite possibly was of the summer. I think $299 million is the global box office. But as we said on our Ghosts episode yesterday, um, which, which you can catch now on YouTube, um, the highest grossing film of 1987. Do you know what it was, Barry? Was it Beverly Hills Cop 2? No. No? It was, it was actually Three Men and a Baby, oh. taking $177 million in the US alone. Um, and I think it came out in like the October or November of the year, so it doesn't qualify to be for us to cover it in this. But yeah, Three Men and a Baby was the biggest film of 1987. Oh. And it made, even, it made a lot of money on VHS because of the... The urban legend of the ghost in the window. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> everybody that's wanted what, to see this ghost, <laughs> and that's exactly what we talked about on that episode we did last night. All right. Um, yeah, the ghost in the in the house with it, which actually is a cardboard cutout of um, Ted Danson. Ted Danson in a tuxedo, <laughs> which is just as scary. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and it's it, twenty odd years. It was like this urban legend until Tom Selleck came out on. Um, I think it was Kimmel or something like that, and said, no, it was, wasn't was even an apartment. It was a soundstage. Do you know what I mean? There's no story about a kid blowing his brains out. It was just a t- it's a cardboard cutout of Ted Danson because of a deleted scene that he did. We're, we're, we're drifting now, aren't we? We're yeah. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. So, so we're done shooting people in Beverly Hills. Box office was $299 million, $28 million budget. And um, 47% on Rotten Tomatoes, but with a box office like that, the return was phenomenal. So who cares what the critics think? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> incredibly cool for um, for Tony Scott and Eddie Murphy. All right, so let's go shoot people back in the 1930s, or maybe even late 20s, doing prohibition in the states, and that's June 3rd's Untouchables. <laughs> Al Capone, the king of the underworld. Somebody messes with me, I'm gonna mess with him. Elliot Ness, the leader of the Untouchables. I have sworn to put this man away. Four honest men took on an army of crime and swore to bring Capone to his knees. You wait till the fight's over, one guy's left standing, and that's how you know who won. The Untouchables, rated R. I, ladies and gentlemen, I adore love the untouchables and sean connery's i believe his first academy award if i'm not mistaken i think it was his only one wasn't it it was he didn't like i don't know 70 80 movies and and uh you know he'd never been nominated but he won for best supporting actor in this which is a great performance i mean the film's fantastic isn't it the the cast alone sean connery kevin costner robert nero andy garcia it's uh it's it's terrific and brian de palma directing um, I just love everything about this film. Every time I watch it, I'm just staggered as to how good it is and how tense it is in some of the sequences. Well, sadly, I've not seen it in 20 years, so <laughs> I, I don't remember much about it. However, I do remember loving the movie at the time, and there's yeah. a lot of 
tense moments in it, but I'd never got a chance to rewatch it again. But I do remember loving it, and I don't know if if I watched it again, I would like it more or like it less. But I, I don't think know. you'd like it more, to be honest. Think so? I think it, it really does stand the test of time. I do, I do remember a scene with involving a buggy going downstairs. <laughs> yeah, that everyone, yeah, every, yeah, everyone remembers yeah. that scene. Yeah. Slow motion, the shootout, everyone's getting shot. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, yeah, I did, I did love it, but I can't comment on it just now because I'd be lying. But I did love it. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, for those that haven't seen it, it's it's a it's a group of um, federal agents in um, in the pro- prohibition era of Chicago, and they're tracking down. It's true. It's, I, I guess it's based on a true Loosely, story. Loosely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Elliot um, Ness and uh, Al, Al Capone never really met. You know, this is not really fact. And also, uh, Al Capone was he was very careful not to engage with the uh, with with the Untouchables at all. Um, you know, in this, they, they're actually trying to kill them, but in, in real life, he just kind of, you know, he, he kept his distance from them. Um, I think the one thing for me that, that came out of this, which really made me laugh when I was reading up about it, was the, the, the closing line of the film is is uh, a newspaper reporter interviewing Kevin Costner, who plays Elliot Ness. Um, and um, they turn around to him and say, what are you going to do now? This is after he's apprehended... Um, uh, Al Capone, uh, what are you going to do now? And um, he says, "I think I'll get a drink." Um, the actual, <laughs> the actual real life Elliot Ness, <laughs> after Prohibition, became an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he spent all his life cracking down on these people, and uh, and then ended up, you know, turning to drink himself, and got involved in a in a kind of a, a, a DUI. Yeah, there, you know, there's there's one scene in this movie that's actually true, and if anyone remembers, it's the baseball bat scene, yeah, where Elliot and uh, his his untouchables actually do their first big raid and bust, and Sean Connery says, you know, if you're if you're gonna go through this door, there's no stopping, just to let you know. And he goes, yeah, I'm ready. Goes through it, busts up the whole, you know, beer and, and liquor being uh, moved about. And Al Capone is holding a dinner and he's walking around the table and he's talking about teamwork and enthusiasms, enthusiasms. And he grabs the baseball bat and he hits the guy who was in charge of that whole operation in the back of the head at the table scene. Just whack, whack. That actually did happen in real life. In front of everybody, <laughs> yeah, it, it did happen. But the the movie lies a little bit because in real life, apparently, he took out three of his old of his fellas, not just the one. Well, <laughs> in that damn, one, we don't have that much time. <laughs> <laughs> True, apparently, he killed he killed three of his own guys um, in that one sequence in real life. But uh, wow, we actually uh, there was actually a hero in this movie. Uh, during filming, did you know? Um, everybody knows who Billy Drago is. They should know mm. who Billy is. Well, he played Frank Nitty. Mm-hmm. You know, he gets thrown off the roof. You know, with uh, by Elliot Ness, uh, Kevin Costner. Um, but during that scene, they, he had a, um, a Tommy gun, and he got whiff along with the police that were uh, protecting the shoot. Um, that there was going to be a couple of gangs down the street. 
uh, going to be fighting. Well, he went with the police dressed in his Frank Nitti uh, outfit with the fake Tommy gun and says, you guys better stop. And they all dispersed <laughs> because they, he, they sca- he scared them to shit. <laughs> Nobody wants Billy Drago with a, with a, with a Tommy gun near you. Yeah, he's just a scary character. Yeah, he's a that? scary looking guy. Yeah, so The Untouchables released on June the 3rd, 1987. 25 million budget for a 76 million um, dollar box office. Pretty good, pretty cool. Um, and 83% on Rotten Tomatoes. So a good summer for um, for Brian De Palma and Kevin Costner. Of course, Kevin and uh, Sean Connery worked together again in uh, Prince of Thieves, the Robin Hood movie. Yeah, I actually forgot about that. That's a good pub, pub quiz question. So on June 12th, almost a week, a little less, little more than a week after, we have, I think, one of the best dark comedies there is, and that is uh, The Witches of Eastwick. Women, a mistake? Or did he do it to us on purpose? <laughs> Jack Nicholson is the devil you always knew he could be. Happy birthday. And Cher, Susan Sarandon, and Michelle Pfeiffer are the witches of Eastwick. Hocus Pocus. The Witches of Eastwick. Rated R. Now playing at a theater near you. I saw this movie, uh, gentlemen, later on, probably in the early 90s. And uh, I couldn't appreciate it back then. You know, with this whole thing of, you know, have a cherry. You know, Jeff from Jack Nicholson feeding Susan Sarandon and Cher and uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, you know, because apparently he's the devil, right? Because they wish for a man uh, to come into their life, a man that's like distinguished and would take care of them. And uh, apparently, what, the devil shows up, doesn't he? That's right. Yeah. It's a it's an odd film. I, I, I. I haven't seen it in a long time. I do remember seeing it when it first came out. Um, directed by George Miller, who did um, Mad Max and Happy Feet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but produced by um, produced by John Peters, who we all know as a producer was just mental back in the day and just would interfere with productions and come up with wild and crazy ideas as to what he wanted to happen. Um, I remember Kevin Smith going on about the Superman movie that he was making at the time, Superman Reborn, with what ended up, you know, almost being Nick Cage. Um, And uh, John Peters was the producer on that, and he was obsessed with having a polar bear in the movie. He wanted Superman to to, to fight a polar bear, and he just, it wasn't in the script, and he just turned up one day and said to Kevin Smith, um, I want a polar bear in this film. I want a fight between Superman and a polar bear. And he was like, "Why? Well, I don't know how we're going to do this. It just doesn't. <laughs> there's no way of working it into the. I don't care. Well, that's what we need. That's what we need." Um, and he did the same with this film as well. He interfered with this film to the point where George Miller just wanted to run away from him because um, he suddenly decided he wanted aliens to appear in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> aliens had come out the year before and were obviously um, fresh in people's minds and it was a huge success and he even showed up one day on set with a stuntman dressed as an alien and told Miller to put him in one of the scenes and he just said any scene just make sure he's in the movie and apparently Jack Nicholson and George Miller uh, left the set 
until John Peters gave up on this fixation. Uh, he was just he's just mental. It was kind of a tough old shoot, I think, because you just had him interfering all the time. But I think the film's okay. I think it. I I, I remember kind of liking it, thinking it was good. I saw it recently. Uh, I think I saw it about two or three years ago. Um, but yeah, I think originally they wanted Bill Murray to play. Um, his name's Daryl Van Horn, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And originally they wanted Bill Murray to do it. It might have been interesting with him playing it. I don't know. But uh, I'm like you. I've not seen it for years, but I remember watching it um, around about the same time as Death Becomes Her, and I remember yeah. it feeling similar to Death Becomes Her, mm-hmm. like kind of mm-hmm. dark horror comedy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when when I think of it, I have to really picture the movie because I just keep picturing Bruce Willis and Meryl Streep. Um, <laughs> <laughs> It's hard to distinguish the two of them, but I, I did. I do remember liking it at the time, and I loved Jack Nicholson at the time when I watched yeah. it. I didn't watch it in '87, but I watched it after seeing like Batman, uh, Chinatown, and stuff like that. So I obviously, I had Jack Nicholson fresh in my mind. Yeah, um, yeah. And don't shoot me, but I do like I do like Cher as an actress. I loved her in Mermaids, and I liked her in Mask. Mask, um, right? Yeah. So I, I remember liking her in this as well. I think the performances, as far as I can remember, were great by everyone. Uh, and I loved, obviously, Michelle Pfeiffer. The ch- I you, you mentioned what, the, the cherry was, scene, Frank. Oh, yeah, the ch- I was about to bring that up. <laughs> what was the cherry scene? It's, is it Veronica Cartwright? I can't remember. Yeah, Veronica Cartwright yeah. is with... She's married to Richard Jenkins. Yes. Uh, you know, yeah. from The Shape of Water and yeah. uh, that movie where he's playing the drums. Step Brothers. <laughs> yeah, Step Brothers. <laughs> Fair use. <laughs> 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 Shut the fuck up, Dale. Um, <laughs> uh, she's she figures out that he's the devil, you know, because I think she I think she, she's a Christian woman, right? She's that she's a godly woman. She figures it out, and she's she's like rubbing herself, and 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 she's trying to imitate what he is. He's like the filth and everything, and he makes her throw up all these cherries. She just. She just heaves him. Where <laughs> Richard Jenkins is just like, this has to stop. And he hits her in the head with, I think, with the um, the poker. That's right. For the fire. And he yeah. goes back on the chair and continues to read the book that he was reading in the beginning. <laughs> there are some mental moments in it. There really are. There's one bit where um, I think, doesn't it, like Jack Nicholson, like, turn. <laughs> Change it into like a big monster or something. He turns end. like into um, like a, a dragon. So if <laughs> anyone, if anyone listening or watching remembers the animation of Peach Dragon, you know from Walt yeah. Disney, it's the same shape as Elliot, with Jack Nicholson's head and even his his ponytail. <laughs> yeah, he had a ponytail, didn't he? Yeah. So it's a dragon body with his head, and he's looking into you know, the window of the kitchen, and he's. <laughs> You know, but basically they just throughout the whole movie, you know, because they are witches, they could um, they're tarring and feathering this. Uh, they made an onion, a voodoo doll onion of him, <laughs> and they're sticking with pins. And he winds up going to a church, and he keeps on telling how every one of the congregation how terrible women are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I can't see Dan, uh, not Dan Aykroyd, um, Bill Murray doing that. You know, I can't see that. Um, but you know, Michelle Pfeiffer and here, here's a quiz: Michelle Pfeiffer, Jack Nicholson, team up again in another movie. Batman Returns. No, he's not even in that. Ooh. 
With um, Richard Jenkins. Wolf. Yes, Wolf. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is a good Wolf movie. Hence, That's you know, good. Yeah. I, I like it. So, how did it do? So, um, released on June the 12th, 1987. Um, 22 million budget <clears throat> for a 63 million box office. So, yeah. At least three times its money back, I think. Seventy-six um, percent on Rotten Tomatoes, so I guess it was cool for um, for the Witches of Eastwick. All right, we're gonna get rid of all this witches and mysticism shit. We're getting rid of it, and we're in twelve days later. We're going out into space because uh, on June twenty-fourth, Mel Brooks graces us with probably the ultimate Star Wars parody in <laughs> Spaceballs. Just space? Where are my balls? Now you got it. Right! Oh, at last. Spaceballs. The movie. Coming June 26th to a very big theater near you. Barry, do you like Mel Brooks? Are you, are you a fan of Spaceballs? I'm not a fan of Spaceballs, but I'm a fan of Mel Brooks. Um, I do love Mel Brooks. I love them in Life Stinks. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I, I actually, I do. Spaceballs is one of those movies where if you watch it today, you would cringe at some of the jokes. <laughs> um, watching it back in the day was hilarious. I've seen it hundreds of times. Um, some memorable scenes, some memorable lines as well, which you'll probably quote throughout this show. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I really like Spaceballs. It was, I think it was the first parody movie that I watched outside the Naked Gun style films. Uh, but Spaceballs, it was a, a really good one. But Darren and I always get our Schwartz twisted on this uh, <laughs> on this show. <laughs> I, I, I mean. I mean, George Lucas, you know, he didn't... He, George Lucas is very protective of Star Wars, especially back in the 80s, including in the 70s, is knowing how much money he made. And he was okay with this once they paid him off. Because <laughs> <laughs> he, he was like... Right this, didn't he? Yeah, Mel yeah. He, he was going to sue him at first. He was going to be like, uh, you're making a parody of Star Wars? Mel Brooks and everybody was like... No, it's called Planet Moron. That's what it's going to be called. <laughs> and then you can see George Lucas just still get more pissed. And then he's like, but we're going to call it Spaceballs. And they're holding money like this in front of his head, <laughs> in, front of, in front of his face. And George was just like, you can call it anything you want. <laughs> he, um, he, see, he had one stipulation, didn't he? That he didn't want them to do any sort of licensing from it. So no merchandise or anything like that. And that's why throughout the film... You see yeah, them holding up merchandise <laughs> all the time. Yeah. Spaceballs, the t-shirt. Spaceballs, the frame floor. The kids love this. I do like the scene where they're talking about, the, the, like, let's get Spaceballs, the movie, out. And they get the movie out. They put it in. They fast forward to their scene. And he's like, what's happening? <laughs> no, no. That was already before. <laughs> We're at now now. Yeah, now. now. <laughs> but it just happened. 
can you go back <laughs> very clever I mean, like you say it's stupid and silly and, and, and probably a little bit cringy at, at times but um, there are some you know some great moments in there especially the the John Hurt cameo which he was yeah. I, I think Mel, Mel Brooks had worked with him before on the history of the world part one mm-hmm. and um, he said to him look can you come and do a walk on cameo for us in, in Spaceballs and he agreed to it and he turned up and he had no idea what he was doing <laughs> recreating that scene from uh, from Alien um, and I think he was there for quite some time because afterwards he had this kind of uh, afterthought that he should have charged for the role that he was playing in it uh, but it's a great old parody of um, of the Alien scene especially when the old Alien starts bloody dancing with a cane and a top hat mm-hmm. and walks off uh, <laughs> do you think do you think that John Hurt's crew actually looked like the real crew from 79 even Sigourney Weaver the woman yes. who looked like Sigourney Weaver actually looked yeah. like them well I wasn't sure when I first saw it I was going to question this actually because I wasn't sure when I first saw it whether it actually was them because even the, the Tom Skerritt looks identical as well and it's not him but it looks no. like him yeah amazing get amazing. this guy some Pepto-Bismol <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean, there's so many funny parts of that movie. You know, there. Me and my wife, when we watch it, our favorite part, one of them, is when they say "comb the desert," and <laughs> there's the, the, they got the big comb, and, and they say, "Have you found anything?" And everyone's going, "No, sir, not yet." And then they go with this little. They go to these this, the two space balls, who who have like the hair bick, and mm-hmm. uh, they said, "How about you?" And he goes, "We ain't found shit." <laughs> <laughs> But when they're combing the desert, the, the guy says to Rick Barras, aren't we being too literal? <laughs> <He's> like, no. <laughs> There's two bits for me as well. One, John Candy's name in this, because he obviously plays the Chewbacca parody. Barf. Uh, barf. <laughs> and the other one was, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other one was Bill, Bill Pullman's character, Lone Star, <laughs> born yeah. somewhere in the Ford Galaxy. <laughs> Was it was a Lord Helmet? It was Rick Moranis, Lord Helmet. Dark Helmet. Dark Helmet, yeah. You know, jam the radar, a big a big jar of jam just hits the satellite dish. Did, did everyone else like Spaceballs, according to uh, Rotten Tomatoes? 56% from the critics. Um, I think the audience score is slightly higher than that. A budget of $22 million, which apparently Mel Brooks said was his most expensive film ever. And a 38 million box office, so it did okay. You know, not fantastic, but you know, it was it was. I guess it, it earned its money back and a little bit more. So uh, yeah, Spaceballs, June 24, 1987. Cult following, I would think mm. now. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, now we're getting into the end of June. You know, and we're going to have a movie being released on June 28th. This one also has a cult following. It's a wake-up call to, for everybody who saw it, and that's Full Metal Jacket. Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. The best war movie ever made. Jay Scott, Toronto Globe and Maine. Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. Bring it home on video cassette. You know, I, I, when I saw this movie, the only thing that I could think of is Arlie Emery, <laughs> the drill instructor. He's the only one that I remember when I watched the movie. Vincent DeForno had a good um, performance in that as well. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's, it's, it's a great cast. Matthew Modine, Harley Ermey, Vincent D'Onofrio. Um, Harley Ermey was <laughs> very method, wasn't he? Because he was a drill yeah. instructor in real life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, spent 11 <laughs> years in, in, uh, in the Marine Corps and served 14, 14 months in Vietnam. Um, but his performance is just frightening. Yeah. It absolutely that, chills me, does his performance. That movie made him a big star, I think. Like, he's a great actor, and that's the first thing I saw him in. Um, and he played a few th- you know, he played a few of the same characters in, like, in The Frighteners. He played yes. the same kind of character. Uh, and obviously, <laughs> the Texas Chainsaw Massacre yeah, remake mm-hmm. and prequel. So he's, he plays the same kind of character, but he was frightening. He scared me as a kid yeah. for that film. No, it's not yeah. even a horror film. Yeah, I wonder if he was similar in real life. I mean, you know, with the way that he, um, the, the way that he instructed his cadets, I guess, when he was uh, when he was in the Marines. Uh, I wonder if there's much difference between how he did things in real life and how he does things in the film. He he ha- he ad libbed for sure. It's the only time I think that Kubrick's allowed anybody to ad lib. He was so impressed with it that he just let him just go for it. And you know that that doesn't just roll off the tongue all that stuff, does it? Unless you've got some sort of previous with it. So I'm guessing you must have been a pretty chilly character in real life as well when he was uh, when he was in the Marines. Well, filmed in England, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, down at the Docklands. Yeah, Pinewood and the Docklands. I think the, the Docklands doubled for was it Hugh? Um, I think where where they were fighting. Yeah, it's uh, it was it, he wouldn't travel, wouldn't Kubrick? So. He 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 just did everything in the UK after a certain period. So, but there's one there's one um, little anecdote from from Matthew Modine which he writes about in his memoirs. Um, he said he recalled a day where he asked Stanley Kubrick's permission to leave set because his wife um, his, because his pregnant wife was scheduled to have a C-section, and he didn't have scenes planned for that day. Kubrick didn't want him to leave the set, claiming that he would just pass out from the blood <laughs> and get in the way of the doctors. It wasn't until Modine threatened to cut his own hand in order to get to the hospital that Kubrick relented and allowed him to leave by making him promise to come back immediately after it's done. <laughs> <laughs> absolute tyrant and you know I don't know if you've seen it Barry but there's a film I think it's on Amazon I, th- I know Frank I think you've seen it filmmaking which is just fascinating it's it's um, it's Leo, Leon Vitale that's it um, who was Kubrick's right hand man for, since the 1970s and basically he basically dishes all the dirt on Stanley Kubrick and how finickety and, and anal he was about everything it's a, it's a fantastic documentary, and it's got some really cool sort of B-roll footage in there as well from The Shining and, and, and you know, I don't know, Barry Lyndon and, and a whole lot of his other films as well. Um, but it's fascinating to watch. Some of the some of the stuff that, you know, the, the anecdotes in there are just as terrifying as some of the characters that guy conjures up. Yeah, I'll uh, take a note of that one because Stanley Kubrick's always been a director that's fascinated me. Yeah, yeah. With, the films that he directs because he always puts little Easter eggs in there yeah, for things yeah. like how many mm-hmm. crew would know. Um, but yeah, I need to check that out because that sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, it's 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 great. Filmmaker, it's called, and I think you'll have a lot of fun with that. It's, it's, mm-hmm. There's some great stuff in there. R. Lee was not the original drill instructor. 
Oh, really? So, was there somebody else? Yeah, there's, there's an actor called uh, Tim Kosalri. He actually uh, stayed in the film, but he's actually the guy. Uh, he's he's the uh, he played the door gunner in uh, Full Metal Jacket. He was originally supposed to be the drill instructor. He's the one who says, "Come get some." Oh, get some. Get yeah, some. come get Shoot some. He was a helicopter. Yeah, yeah. This <laughs> uh, ain't ain't war hell, you know. And uh, <laughs> so he was yelling part of at the extras during his uh, filming. And uh, he kept on going and going. And after, you know, getting close to 30 minutes, he started getting tired. Well, R. Lee found this to be his, his opportunity. It's came right in and said, listen up, numb nuts. And he kept on going and going and going and going. And, and, and Stanley was just like, he's perfect. This guy's perfect. I want him. And so uh, R. Lee just gave Stanley, you know, this is what I would say to my instructor, my, my you know, recruits. And he had 150 pages of insults. <laughs> oh, wow. And so Stanley looked at him and says, I want you to say this. I want you to say this. And I want you to say this. Did he win any? Did he win an Oscar for it? Or was he nominated at least? I think he was nominated. Oh, he was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor. Um, but that's it. No Oscar nominations at all. That was, that was, that's a disservice like Quint. Like uh, yeah. Robert Shaw not getting anything for Jaws. Yeah. All right, Darren, how did uh, Full Metal Jacket do at the box office? Um, so Full Metal Jacket was a 30 million budget, and that's probably because they had to convert all of the um, uh, the Docklands down in London into into Hue in Vietnam. And, yeah, 46 million box office, 93% on Rotten Tomato. So it was okay. It was kind of cool and cruel it deserved to do a lot better but then you know i guess a lot of stanley kubrick's movies were divisive not everybody liked seeing them all right all right ladies and gentlemen this is the end of part one stay tuned for part two with our special guest uh, barry from wolfman's got nards obviously to me it's one of the greatest movies of all time and when people start to discover the monster squad today they will always compare it to the Goonies 